Hope everyone is doing well this morning. It is a joy to be back with you. As Jim said, I was here five or six years ago, and uh, Kathy and I came several years ago and um, thoroughly enjoyed our time with y'all back then, and so it's, it's a, a privilege and honor to be back with you this morning. Okay, um, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and, and we will begin. Father, we're so very grateful to be able to gather together as your sheep that you have called to yourself, we who have heard your voice and you have called us to yourself. Uh, we thank you for that privilege. We pray that as we go now into this next hour, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work of illumination. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us, within us all for the glory of our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Hearing from Heaven, How to Know the Voice of God. Undoubtedly, you have heard people say, well, God has spoken to me. God told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. Or, Pastor, God told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. Lots of people out there claiming that God speaks to them. God told me this. God told me that. Have you ever heard that and it's made you wonder, what's wrong with me? You know, I... I just don't hear God speak to me that way. I don't, I don't hear God speak to me the way all these other people say that he speaks to them. Is, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my walk with the Lord? Are these people, these folks have a closer walk with God than do I? Is there something wrong with me? Am I not even saved? And so if you have ever had those questions, had those thoughts, I hope that this next hour or so will be an encouragement and a help to you. So as we begin, I want us to begin by defining a couple of terms that are widely misunderstood. The first of these is revelation. Revelation refers to God revealing new information that up until that point has been previously hidden. So God revealing something new. Uh, revelation is not happening anymore today. Revelation is over. It's completed. And so when you hear someone say, oh, well, I really got revelation on this. Well, no, you didn't. You didn't get revelation because that's not happening anymore. Now, what may have happened is illumination. Illumination refers to the enabling work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers to understand and appropriate, to obey the truths of Scripture. That's illumination. Uh, most all of us as Christians, we can think back in various points of our lives when we have been reading the Word of God and we read a scripture that maybe we've read a hundred times before, but all of a sudden the light comes on, right? And it's like, oh, that's what that means. Now I understand it. That's illumination. And that is something that should be happening in the lives of us as believers today. So, Illumination, yes. Revelation, no. Now, there is a term referred to as divine revelation knowledge. Uh, this refers to God giving people uh, new information that is not already recorded in Scripture. Divine revelation knowledge. Now, this was a term that was first coined by a man named Essek W. Kenyon. And Kenyon was the grandfather of the Word of Faith movement, which is thoroughly heretical. So Kenyon is not someone that I would uh, commend to you at all. But Kenyon believed in two types of knowledge. The first of these, sensory knowledge, that which we get through our five senses, sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. And the other is revelation knowledge. And this is supernatural knowledge that comes only from God. Now, according to Kenyon, these two spheres of knowledge are mutually exclusive. And what that means is, is that reasoning or logical thought is of no value. So if you want to go deep with God, get to the deep, secret, hidden things of God, then you've got to disengage your mind, put, put the old noodle in neutral. Of course, the Bible never enjoins us to do that at all. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. The Bible never enjoins us to disengage our minds when it comes to the things of God. And... This is basically a warmed-over version of the ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. 
the Gnostics derive their name, Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics believed to get this secret knowledge, they had to disengage their minds, put their intellect in neutral. And so what we see today in the charismatic movement, Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, all that is a warmed-over version of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. And unfortunately, Gnosticism is alive and well and thriving in the modern evangelical church, whatever evangelical means anymore. But um, I want to show you this. This is a book from Beth Moore. And Beth Moore says this on page two. She says, what little I know, I want others to know. Before God tells me a secret, stop right there. That's Gnosticism. Okay? That's Gnosticism. Before God tells me a secret, he knows up front I'm going to tell it. And, of course, my logical mind kind of kicks in here. Then is it really a secret? You know, I mean, that doesn't make any, any sense. By and large, that's our deal. You see, Beth Moore and Yahweh have their own little deal going on together. They, they got the, she's got this secret little inside track to, to God, and they've got their own little special deal. That is Gnosticism. So if you don't have your own little special deal with God, then you don't have as close a walk with God as does Beth Moore. Beth Moore, in in another book entitled, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, ironically, the subtitle of this book is Arming Yourself in an Age of Seduction. Ironic. But she writes in her book, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, she said, I heard the voice of God speak to my heart, come and play. I love that he said, come, not go, come. That meant he was already there. I also love how I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice. Does that make any sense? What, what is a silent voice anyway? And if it is a silent voice, how does it have a tone to it? But I digress. I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice that he was smiling. I could have outlined his expression with my finger. Ooh. I mean, that's just creepy. (laughs) And she says, I built a snowman. I laughed with God. He laughed with me. I am so in love with him. I am so in love with him. So close a relationship does Beth Moore have with Jesus that she went out and built a snowman with him one day. Have you ever built a snowman with Jesus? Well, if you've never built a snowman with Jesus, then you don't have as close a walk with Christ as does Beth Moore. I am so in love with him. I am so in love with him. What you'll notice with many of these popular female Bible teachers, whether it's Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, whoever, uh, Christine Kane, they have a very romanticized view of Christ. Jesus is like their boyfriend. It, 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 you see this. I mean, it's just it just uh, it's all through their teaching. In fact, if you, unless you think I'm overstating my case here, later on the same page, and I just couldn't fit it on the screen, but on the same page of this book, she calls this relationship we ha- she has with Jesus quote an immortal romance. Her words, not mine. So, this special revelation knowledge, this special relationship that Beth Moore has. Now, I want to show you a few clips here from a few different people. I'm I'm not sure why this is. Hang on. Y'all bear with me. I need to get out of this uh, presentation, go back into it, because the clips are already showing up for some reason. Okay, I'm going to show you kind of a wide range of speakers here. And my point is not to lump all of them in the same theological basket per se. Uh, Some of the people I'll show you are are heretics. Others I would not necessarily call an outright theological heretic in in the sense of a false teacher. So I'm going to show you kind of a broad range of, of speakers here and preachers. My point in doing this is to show you how widespread and how ubiquitous this belief is that God should be speaking to us outside of Scripture, and we should be hearing the voice of God outside of Scripture. It is an almost universally accepted belief 
amongst evangelicalism today. So the first one, Rick Warren, that I would, who I would call a false teacher, but Rick Warren. Last week, we began a new uh, mini-series on understanding how to hear the voice of God. Very few things are more important than this because you can't have a relationship to God if you can't hear God. If all you do is ever talk to him in prayer and you never hear God speak to you, that's a one-way relationship. That isn't much of a relationship. So if all you do is talk to God in prayer and you never hear him talk to you, then that's not much of a relationship. You don't have much of a relationship with God if you are not hearing him speak to you. So you see how important this apparently is. This from Priscilla Shire. Hi, I'm Priscilla Shire, and I'm hoping that you'll join me for a six-week journey as we talk about how we can hear and discern the voice of God in our lives. Do you really expect and anticipate that the divine voice of God can be heard by you? Do you really think that he loved you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough to then talk to you? Do you believe that he loves you enough to die for you, but not love you enough to talk to you? What does she think the Bible is? What an insult to the Word of God. This from Charles Stanley. So you're, are you asking if God speaks specifically? And the answer is, yes, he does. Let me give you two or three examples. Speaking about buying groceries, on a particular day, I had a very short period of time, and so I wanted to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving. My time was really running out. I thought, well, I shouldn't do this now. I said, God, just show me what to do. It's like God said, go to this store, buy the turkey now. Against sort of my will, I went. I walked right in, straight to the right place, the right pound of turkey, walked right out, paid it, got back in the car in less than about 25 minutes. Did God tell me to go? Yes, he did. So God apparently has, he has such a close relationship with Charles Stanley uh, that, that God even tells Charles Stanley where to go get his Thanksgiving Day turkey. Has God ever told you where to go get your turkey? If God's never told you where to go get your turkey, then you just don't have as close a relationship with God as does Charles Stanley. Am I saying that Charles Stanley is a heretic? I'm not saying that. I'm showing these clips to show you how widespread and almost unchallenged, this notion is. What does Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Charles Stanley, Beth Moore, Priscilla Shire, what do they all have in common? They all claim that God speaks to them directly outside of Scripture. Whether you're talking about someone like Charles Stanley or whether you're talking about someone like Muhammad, they all claim that God speaks to them directly outside of Scripture. Now, this is a book from Sam Storms. Now, Sam Storms is certainly no heretic. In fact, he would share our view of a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation, doctrines of grace, but he is a charismatic, meaning he does believe that the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, continue to be in operation today. Sam Storms writes in his book, Practicing the Power, to be the recipient of prophetic revelation from God, whether in dreams, impressions, transit, trances, visions, or words of knowledge and words of wisdom, can be nothing short of euphoric. The experience brings feelings of nearness to God and a heightened sense of spiritual intimacy that isn't often the case with other of the charismata. This is a very unfortunate denigration of the more normative spiritual gifts such as teaching, mercy, administration, exhortation, giving, hospitality, all of those gifts as a cessationist. I'm, I'm a card-carrying cessationist. I affirm that all of those gifts are still in operation in the church today. But as a cessationist, I only hold that the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, physical healing, those sign gifts are no longer, no longer operative in the church. But according to Sam Storms, these, the the apostolic gifts and the prophecies and the dreams and the revelations and impressions and even trances and visions, uh, these carry a deeper level of intimacy than do 
the gifts of teaching, mercy, administration. That's a very dangerous thing to teach. That denigrates legitimate spiritual gifts that are operative in the body today. It's very unfortunate. Again, this is a, this is a modern-day version. It is a warmed-over version of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, the haves and the have-nots. So if you get dreams and visions and you go into trances, then you're a have. You've got a really close walk with God. But if you just have, for example, the gift of teaching, that's not very spiritual. That's a have-not. That's Gnosticism. It's a very dangerous thing to teach. I would submit to you that the resource that is singularly most responsible for introducing charismatic thought into at least theoretically non-charismatic churches is Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Uh, burst onto the scenes in the early 1990s, before Experiencing God, almost every non-charismatic evangelical would have understood that that. God speaks to us in the Bible, we speak to God in prayer. Almost all of us would have understood that. Enter experiencing God, and now, what, 30 years later, hardly anybody understands that now. Hardly anybody does. But Blackaby says this, If you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. So if you do not hear God speak to you outside of Scripture then you are in trouble at the heart of your Christian experience. Now, I mentioned to you that I'm going to show you some clips of a, of a heretic, of heretics. Here's one. Uh, Sid Roth. I'm about to show you a video clip from Sid Roth. Sid Roth is honestly the, one of the looniest people. You, if you've ever watched his TV show, It's Supernatural, or go to his YouTube channel, he has the looniest of the loony. Uh, he has he has the discernment of a lug nut. I mean, there there's there's literally if if Sid Roth did not know who I was, and I know that he does, but if he didn't know who I was, I, this with with maybe just a smidgen of hyperbole, if any at all, I really believe that I could call up Sid Roth's television program and say, "Hey, Sid, I was just abducted by a UFO, Elvis." and Bigfoot were on the UFO and they flew me to heaven and they showed me my own personal mansion. I honestly believe that he would really have me on his program the very next week. Uh, It's that bad. It is honestly. So this video clip, Sid Roth on this program is interviewing the granddaughter of Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was a famous charismatic faith healer in the early, uh, first half of the 1900s. Smith Wigglesworth was known for kicking people and punching people because he could see demons attached to someone. So if you had arthritis, he, he could see the demon of arthritis that was attached to you. And of course, the only way to dislodge said demon of arthritis is to kick someone or to punch it off of him, you know just like you see Jesus and the disciples doing, right? So Sid Roth is about to tell a story, an infamous story of an event in the life of Smith Wigglesworth. Watch this. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. I have read of the great men and women of faith. One in particular intrigues me so much. His name, Smith Wigglesworth. He had some of the most outrageous miracles I ever heard of in my life. Uh, Let me give you one example. Some parents had a two-month-old baby dying in the hospital. The parents kidnapped the child took the child to a Smith Wigglesworth meeting, and Smith looks at the child, looks at the parents, and says, can I do what God tells me to do? Well, what would you do if you were the parents? The child's dying anyway, right? He takes the baby, two-month-old, throws the baby against the wall. The baby. Then the baby's on the floor. He ta- have you ever seen someone play soccer? Have you ever seen them uh, kick a soccer ball? He does that with the baby. The baby falls. 
into the congregation. No crying. Is it dead? 100% healed. No crying. Is that not shocking? That is just unbelievable. There are just no words for something like that. And remember, in the charismatic movement, one of the, one of the mantras that you hear very often in the charismatic movement is this. What God does for one, he'll do for you. And so someone is watching this at home. They're watching Sid Roth talk about this story from this famed evangelist, faith healer, Smith Wigglesworth. And they're sitting at home. They're watching this and they think, my kid is sick. My neighbor's kid is sick. What God does for one, he'll do for you. And lest you think that surely nobody would be dumb enough to believe something like that. The very fact that he put it on his television program and advertised it, broadcasted it to the entire world, it's on his YouTube channel right now as we speak. That is self-evident proof that people are dumb enough to believe something like this. Shocking. Have you ever heard this, that prayer is a two-way street? You've heard this undoubtedly. So many people teach today that prayer is a two-way street. And they say, well, you pray to God, you talk to God, you tell him what's going on in your life and your needs and blah, blah, blah. You talk to him for a while. And then you listen to God for him to talk back to you. Prayer is a two-way street. It's two-way communication. Watch this from Robert Morris. You know... If we said, we're going to have a class on prayer, you'd say, that's, that's, I need that. And even the disciples said, teach us to pray. But let me remind you that hearing God is the second half of prayer. Because if you can't hear God, why would you pray? Now, one reason is to make our requests and petitions be known to God. But God never intended prayer to be a giving of our to-do list to Him every morning. He intended prayer to be communication between a father and his children. And if you'll just take some time and start to listen, you'll be amazed that He'll speak. So prayer is two-way communication. That's what almost every popular Bible teacher out there teaches nowadays. So you've got something going on in your life. You've got a big decision to make, and you're not sure what to do. And so you go to the Lord, and I don't mean to mock here because so many people do this, but you go to the Lord, and you talk to the Lord, and you say, okay, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. I need your direction. What should I do? I'm listening. And you get real quiet. And you listen real hard. And then, inevitably, after just a few seconds, what happens? A, a thought, right, just kind of just kind of flashes through our minds. You know, we, we hear these, these words in our mind and we think, oh, was that you, Lord? Or was that me? Was that, was that God or, or, or was that the pizza I ate tonight? I mean, how do you know? How do you know when God is speaking to you? How do you know the voice of God? Prayer is this two-way street. It's interesting that Robert Morris actually references Luke chapter 11 when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, if prayer was a two-way street, and that's how we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to talk to God and listen for him in some still small voice to talk back to us. What a great opportunity, right? For Jesus to say, guys, I'm so glad you asked me that. Here's how you pray. You talk to God, and then you get real quiet, and you still your mind. You get real quiet, and you listen real hard for God to speak back to you. The, the ball is sitting on the tee, right? 
waiting for Jesus to just knock it out of the prayer is a two-way street park. But is that what Jesus said? No, it's not at all what he said. He said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Jesus didn't say anything about listening to God for him to talk back to you. Nothing. Not at all. Well, doesn't God speak to us in a still, small voice? We hear this all the time too, don't we? God speaks to us in a still, small voice. Now, I know you probably can't see that. This is a tweet from Beth Moore. She says, there's a time to give up and a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels a whole lot like the time to give up. The only difference is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, try again. Still, small voice. So, is this biblical? Well, it's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible. But the question is, is what does it mean? The still small voice is found but one place in the Bible, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, and it must be in the King James. The King James is the only translation that renders it that way. Other renderings like the New American Standard, the sound of a quiet whisper or something like that. Still small voice is only in the King James, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, for context, you might remember that Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, had just called down fire from heaven, destroyed the false prophets of Baal, destroyed the offering that they put up there, you know, lapped up the water, just a very dramatic scene. And then the woman Jezebel got after him, threatened him, and so Elijah feared for his life, and kind of curious after such a dramatic victory, And then this woman, Jezebel, gets after him. She must have been some woman. And so he starts, I mean, he gets out of Dodge, and he runs into the wilderness, and summarizing this a little bit, goes into a cave. He's in a cave now, and this is where we pick up in verse 11. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, Break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, before Yahweh. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still, small voice. There it is, right there. Only place in the Bible that has that. 1 Kings 19, verse 12. And that is the proof text for us hearing from God in a still, small voice inside of our head. But let's read the next verse. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in, the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? So you see this still, small voice, the sound of a quiet whisper. Dear friends, this was not some internal voice inside of Elijah's head. It was not internal. It was external. It says it very clear that when he heard this, he walked out to the entrance of the cave so he could hear this voice more clearly. And then God spoke, and he heard God speak again, Clearly, what are you doing here, Elijah? Dear friends, the voice was not internal. It was external. It was not an internal subjective voice. It was an external audible voice that Elijah heard with his two ears, just like you are hearing my voice right now. It was not in here. It was out there. So can we please do away with the whole still small voice thing? It's time we lay that to rest. It's not what it's talking about. Well, well, what about John 10, 27? My sheep hear my voice. John 10, 27 is the go-to text for this whole notion of God speaking to us today in a direct quotable sense outside of Scripture. All of the people who teach this, all of them, go to John 10, 27. It is like the gold standard of this whole theology. All right? So John chapter 10, look at verse 1. We're talking about we're sheep and we can hear God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. 
But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, now watch this carefully, and the sheep, watch, hear his voice. Can can you just say those three words? Hear his voice. So John 10, 27 to me is the most concise and comprehensive verse in Scripture about hearing God. Uh, It is when Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice, Mm. I know them, and they follow me. Bada boom, bada bing. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You can't argue with that. It says it right there, right? Let's look at the context. And to look at the context, we only need to bump up just one verse. Start in verse 26. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says to them, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Dear friends, this is not talking about God whispering to you in some still small voice inside of your head telling you where to go to have lunch one day. This is talking about salvation. This is regeneration. Look at verse 28. And I give eternal life to them. To who? To a sheep. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. I give eternal life to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Dear friends, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand the plain meaning of John 10, 27. This is talking about regeneration. This is salvation. This is the the effectual call of the gospel. Do you know what you were before you came to Christ, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you know him as Savior and Lord. Before your conversion, do you know what you were? You weren't a goat. You were a sheep. But you were a lost sheep. You were a lost sheep. And you were wandering around now, out there in the pasture of life with your head down, grazing, just minding your own business. But then all of a sudden you hear a voice. You hear a call and you perk your head up and you see the shepherd and you go to him. My sheep know my voice and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. This is the effectual call of the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of the new birth. This is a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment and convicts us of the truth of the gospel, how he takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, how he makes us alive in Christ. And what a terrible trivialization of such a beautiful, majestic passage of Scripture to reduce something that beautiful, that deep, that profound, that magnanimous, to reduce it to something as trivial is like God telling you where to go to have lunch one day or telling you to take a right turn instead of a left turn. Really? And, if, and I'm going to say this not to sound harsh, but it is reality. If you can't understand the clear meaning of John 10, 27, if you take John 10, 27 and reduce it to something as trivial and menial as that, You've got no business preaching scripture. You've got no business teaching the Bible. So this is not hard. It's, it's, the meaning is crystal clear. And if you have ever wondered about eternal security, whether or not you can lose your salvation, spend some time in John chapter 10. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He calls you to himself you come to him he holds you in his hand and no one will snatch you out and as if his hand were not strong enough and it is but look at verse 29 my father who has given them to me and that's what you are christian you are a gift given by the father to the son my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand And so as though his hand were not strong enough, and it is, Jesus takes 
the Father's hand and wraps it, as it were, around that of his own. And friends, ain't nobody getting out of that. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Jesus Calling is the hottest-selling devotional book on the market, and it has been for the last almost a decade now. It is light years ahead of everything else out there. Jesus Calling is no ordinary devotional book. I'm going to show you some excerpts from the introduction to Jesus Calling. No edits on my part, copied, pasted. This is what Sarah Young says about Jesus Calling. During that same year in 92, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they received from him. Now, God Calling is a book written by uh, by two anonymous female mystics back in the 1930s. And these women, we don't know exactly. I've got a copy of it, actually. We don't know exactly who they were. Their names are not given. Best I can tell, they were probably some Roman Catholic mystics. But these two women practiced waiting in the presence of God. And it's like they, with enough practice, they finally tuned in to just the right frequency. And when they hit just the right frequency, God started calling them. And they wrote down what he was saying. This was the inspiration for Jesus calling. Sarah Young says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Just like the ladies who wrote God Calling, Sarah Young tuned in to just the right frequency, and she began hearing messages from Jesus that she wrote down. And she says that this was necessary because even though that God communicated with her through the Bible, she understood that. She said, I yearned for more. I needed more than the Bible. The Bible was just not enough, you see, for Sarah Young. And sadly, for the vast majority of people who profess to be Christians, the Bible does not seem to be enough for them either. Christians will say, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I know the, the Bible is the word of God, but I, I need something more. Here's my question for those professing Christians who would say that the Bible is not enough, you need something more. Here's my question. Have you mastered this book? From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, you have completely mastered this book, cover to cover, start to finish. You have squeezed every drop of truth there is to be squeezed out of this book. There is nothing else you can learn. If the answer to that question is no, and it is, because, dear friends, none of us have done that. Every one of us in this room, we could spend a thousand lifetimes studying this book and then accumulate all of our knowledge and just scratch the surface of what's in this book. So if the answer to that question is no, and it is, then please don't tell me the Bible's not enough. You don't even understand what you have in black and white right in front of you. It's an inexhaustible resource. Don't tell me the Bible's not enough. But it wasn't enough for Sarah Young. And sadly, it's not enough for many professing Christians today. Sarah Young says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. Houston, we have a problem. So Sarah Young tuned in to just the right frequency. And when she hit just the right frequency, Jesus started calling Sarah Young and she began to write down what he was saying. And friends, if that is what is happening, do you know what she's doing? She's writing scripture. That's what she's doing. And when you read these devotionals, 365 of them in the book, they're all written in the first person for Jesus. I, Jesus, will do such and such. I am this. I am that. They're all written in the first person for Christ. So if Jesus is really really calling her and she's writing down what what he's saying, she's writing scripture. And whatever Jesus says to her should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. Because whatever God says should carry the same authority as anything he says in here. Any verse in scripture. So we should add that to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. 
and the popularity of Jesus' calling is a sad testimony to the profound lack of discernment amongst so many professing believers today. And now there's so many spinoffs. You know, Jesus Calling sold so many millions of copies. And, and anytime something does well in the Christian publishing world, anytime there's kind of a breakthrough kind of thing, and it, there's always spinoffs of it. And so now there's, you know, spinoffs from Jesus Calling. There's Jesus Calling teenagers, Jesus Calling moms. I'm just waiting for Jesus Calling little white cripple boys so I can get my copy of my personal cousin. See what Jesus is saying to little white cripple boys. And, it is just it's a sad testimony to the lack of discernment. Beth Moore, when godly people do ungodly things, she says this, I am being as honest as I know how to be when I say that I did not write these pages by simple preference. I wrote them because had I not, the rocks in my yard would have cried out. Nothing like taking that verse of Scripture and applying it to yourself. Unbelievable. What God has done, what God does with what he has promised is his business. I entrust this message entirely to the one who delivered it while I sat bug-eyed. So Beth Moore was just this passive recipient as God downloaded information to her that apparently is contained in the pages of when godly people do ungodly things. I can tell you one thing godly people don't do. Claim that God speaks to them when he's not doing it. Godly people don't do that. Godly people do not put words in the mouths of the Alpha and Omega that he did not say. That's one thing that godly people don't do. Watch this from Matt Chandler. So, so let's talk about what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Um, the thus saith the Lord, look right at me, is over. Look at me. When this text is talking about prophecy, it's not talking about the way Jeremiah prophesied or Isaiah prophesied. Or, no, no, that, that's closed. That's canonized. So you will never prophesy in a way that's on par, equal to, anywhere near the inerrant, infallible word of God. That's closed, shut. And so the best you've got, the best you've got is the humility to say, I think the Lord would have me lay this before you. So Matt Chandler and, and many others, and even Sarah Young would acknowledge this, that um, you know, when God speaks in Scripture, that's really, really authoritative. So when he speaks to us today outside of Scripture, it's, it doesn't carry the same weight as Scripture does because that's canon. So when God, he, he still speaks, God still speaks, but it doesn't carry as much authority as it does in the Bible. How does that work? So when, when God speaks to us outside of the Bible, he still means it, but he doesn't mean it quite as much as he meant it here. What, did, did, did God have his anthropomorphic fingers crossed? You know, when God speaks to us today outside of the Bible, he, he still means it, but he just kind of means it. He sort of means it, mostly means it. Dear friends, if God is speaking, God is speaking. And whatever he says carries with it divine authority. And so whatever he's saying to all these people claiming that God speaks to them, God told me this, God told me that, should be just as authoritative as John 3.16 or any verse in this, in this book. Matt Chandler says, well, I, I feel like the Lord would have us do this. I feel like the Lord said to me, Watch, not that I encourage you to do a whole lot of it, but watch, uh, watch Christian television sometime. Listen to some of these preachers. Start to, start to notice how often you hear them say this. I feel like the Lord is telling us such and such. I really believe like the Lord is trying to tell us such and such. You hear that kind of language all the time. I really feel like the Lord is trying to tell us said nobody in the Bible ever. Dear friends, when the, when the Lord spoke in the days of the Bible, and by the way, it wasn't as often as what a lot of people think. A lot of people have this notion that God was just speaking to everybody willy-nilly all the time in the biblical days. He wasn't. He wasn't. There were long stretches. There were, some, there were some major characters in the Bible who went their entire lives without hearing anything from God. 
There's 400 years between the Old and New Testament. God didn't say anything. But when God did speak, he spoke with crystal clear clarity. The word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Even in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit spoke, he spoke with crystal clear clarity. Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Nowhere in the Bible will you find anyone saying, well, I just really feel like the Lord is trying to tell us. That is language that is foreign to Scripture. Foreign to Scripture. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, what about, what about Samuel? Didn't Samuel kind of have a little trouble hearing the voice of God? Samuel, two things about that. You remember that account that God called Samuel. Samuel was a boy, and God called his name three times, and Samuel thought it was Eli that was calling him, right? And so it took a little bit of time for Samuel to realize that it was God calling. But two points. Number one, Samuel was a boy. He was a young boy when this happened. So that's one thing. The other thing, when you read this account, the context says that the, a word from the Lord was rare in those days. So God was not speaking regularly at all in that particular period of time. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. But even that, even though he was a boy, even though the word of the Lord was rare in those days, Samuel still knew exactly what God said. He called his name clearly. Okay. So how does God speak to us today? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The writer of Hebrews says that long ago in the Old Testament, long ago God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Indeed, God spoke in many different portions and in many different ways. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to Moses up on the mountain through storm and thunder. God spoke to Elijah through that still, small voice. In Numbers chapter 22, God even made a donkey talk. So God did indeed speak in many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, says the writer of Hebrews, he has spoken to us in his Son. Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, he has said in his Son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in his word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now let's pause here. What does this mean? What is Peter referring to? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is referring to the transfiguration recorded in Matthew 17. You remember that uh, Peter, James, and John had gathered there. Jesus was there. And all of a sudden, Jesus was transfigured before them. And it's like the, the veil that had been hiding the glory that he had with the Father from, from before the world was, that that veil was peeled back just a little bit. And Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. And beside him, Moses on one side, Elijah on the other. Very dramatic scene. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration. And then look at the next verse. Peter says, For we have the prophetic word made more sure. Made more certain. What is he talking about? What is this prophetic word that is more sure, more certain than what they saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. 
this. The scriptures. The written word of God. Peter says is more certain than what they experienced at the Mount of Transfiguration. That is a stunning thought. Peter was the eyewitness. He was there along with James and John. Think about what he's saying. This is more certain than that. You hear people offer stories and they go something like this. You know, various takes on something something along these lines. Well, you know, I, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning one night. In the middle of the night, I woke up and I, I, all of a sudden I started think, thinking about my friend Bill. And I just had this this incredible desire and feeling and, and unction that I needed to pray for Bill. And so I prayed for Bill at 3 o'clock in the morning. I didn't know why I prayed for Bill. Come to find out, Bill was in a car accident at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, how, you're telling me that's, that's not God speaking to me? Variations of things like that, you know. So what do we do with things like that? Number one, we cannot exegete experiences. All we can do is exegete Scripture. I can't exegete your experience. I can only exegete Scripture. I would also point out that it's not just we as Christians who have experiences, unusual things. Mormons have experiences. Buddhists have experiences. Muslims have experiences. Outright pagans have experiences. Lots of people have unusual experiences that they can't fully explain. So here's the bottom line. Whatever experience you think you may have had along those lines, whatever experience you think you may have had, I guarantee you one thing, it doesn't approach that experience. It doesn't begin to approach that. So could God wake us up in the middle of the night to pray for one of our friends? Of course. You know, uh, you chalk that up to a kind providence of God. What do we do with it? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Don't try to figure it out. You know, can God lay someone on our heart? You know, will you hear that language? Well, God laid you on my heart. God gave me a burden for this person or that person. Can God do those things? Of course he can. That's not the question. Of course he can. But we don't have a mechanism to know when God may or may not be doing those things. We have no way of knowing. And I give the illustration often that uh, I grew up in Mississippi. You can probably tell from my accent. I'm not from around these parts. I grew up in Mississippi and one of my best childhood friends is a man named Chad, Chad Stewart. Chad and I grew up together. We've known each other ever since we were toddlers. And uh, Chad still lives in Mississippi. I live in Montana. Kathy and I live in Montana. I hardly ever see Chad anymore. But from time to time, I'll think about Chad, and I'll pray for Chad. Is that God bringing Chad to my remembrance? I don't know. Maybe I just thought about Chad. I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Who knows? Who cares? You know, it, I don't need an unction to pray for somebody. I have a command in Scripture to pray for someone. I don't have to have God to tell me, Justin, I want you to go witness to that man over there, you know, walking around in the parking lot. I don't have to have God tell me. to. I've got a great commission that tells me I need to witness to people. Can I go off on just a quick little tangent? One of the, one of, looking back in seminary, there are so many things that are just... I think probably the, the dumbest thing that I ever experienced in seminary is they had this class called Spring Evangelism Practicum. And you could sign up for this class, and you have like half a semester of instruction. You sign up for this class, and you buy an airplane ticket. And during your spring break, you fly somewhere around the world, somewhere, some other country, to go do a prayer walk. And that's what the class is called, prayer walking. And I can remember reading in the description, in the, in the syllabus, I can remember reading this. It says, we're not going to talk to people about God. We're going to talk to God about the people. Literally, you, you buy a plane ticket, fly halfway around the world, the particular year that I started to go and I end up not going. 
but was to Japan. They were going to take a group of kids to, you know, young adults, to Japan to walk around the streets of Tokyo and pray. And specifically not to talk to people about God. Can you imagine how dumb that is? You fly halfway around the world, start walking around the streets of Tokyo, and you're praying to the Lord, and you see someone over there, Lord, Lord, send someone to witness to that man. I don't need, yeah, anyway, I digress. As important as hearing the voice of God supposedly is, have you ever asked yourself this question? Why are there no instructions anywhere in the Bible about how to hear the voice of God? Have you ever thought about that? The bookshelves in Christian bookstores practically sag under the weight of books. Five steps to hear the voice of God. How to know the voice of God. How to discern God's voice. They sag under the weights of these books. And yet there is not one syllable of instruction anywhere, Old or New Testament, as to how to hear God's voice. If this is so important, why are there no instructions? Why does God give us no guidance on how to hear his voice? I mean, read through the New Testament. What do we have in the New Testament? We've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got the account of Jesus' life in ministry. We have the book of Acts that tells us about the birth of the church and the growth of the church and the spread of Christianity. We've got the book of Romans that gives us all kinds of doctrine and theology. We've got the pastoral epistles. We've got... Uh, instructions on qualifications for deacons, qualifications for elders. We've got instructions on how to resolve conflict. We've got instructions on uh, living a holy life. We've got eschatology in the book of Revelation and sprinkled throughout the New Testament. We've got all of this instruction about all of these different things. But there is not one syllable of instruction on how to hear the voice of God. You ever thought about that? There's a reason for that. There's two reasons. Number one, when God speaks, you don't need any instruction on how to hear his voice. Number two, the only instruction that we need is right here in these 66 books. That is how God speaks to us. Well, Justin, you say that God doesn't speak to us today outside of Scripture. Well, the Bible doesn't tell me where to go to college. The Bible doesn't tell me if I should be a plumber or a mechanic or an accountant. The Bible doesn't tell me where to live. You know, so, you know, we have all these big decisions that we have to make throughout the course of our life. So how, how do I know God's will for my life? Because the Bible doesn't tell me these things. How do I know God's will for my life? Here's how you know God's will for your life. Number one, read, study, and obey God's word. Read, study, and obey God's word. If you're not doing that, then nothing else matters anyway. Read, study, and obey God's word. And then if you've got some big decision that you need to make and you're not sure the right thing to do, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it liberally in abundance. Pray for wisdom. Now, if you're not reading, studying, and obeying God's word, then don't bother asking God for wisdom. He's not going to give it to you. But if you are, pray for wisdom and then seek wise, godly counsel. Men, go to some godly men that you know and ask for their counsel. Ladies, go to some godly ladies. If you have, if you have a husband who is walking with the Lord, talk with him first. If you don't, then go to the elders of your church. Go to some godly ladies in your church that you know are walking with the Lord, ask them for their, for their wisdom. And uh, I do that. If I have something that comes up in my life or my ministry and I'm not sure what to do, I'm going to seek godly counsel. And the first godly counsel I'm going to seek is from this lady sitting right here. Kathy and I will talk about it. And if both of us together decide, you know, we need some other eyes on this, then I've got some men in my life that I'll go to and I'll say, brothers, this is what's going on. What do you think? What should I do? What's your counsel? And I'll listen to them. And you know what? It's been very helpful. 
There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, safety. And then after that, you Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he might direct your paths. He'll direct your paths if he's got nothing better to do. He will direct your paths. How does he do that? Dear friends, I don't have the foggiest idea. I just know that he does. You don't have to worry, oh, well, if I, you know, if I, if I choose job A, but I really should have chosen job B, then, then everything's just going to fall apart and collapse like a house of cards. Uh-uh. Relax. Relax. He spoke the universe into existence. I think he can direct our paths. I have such a high view of the sovereignty of God that I, I don't even like using language like this. I know what people mean, and, I, and I've, I'm sure I've said it myself, but uh, you, you hear people say from some time, well, God really intervened in this situation. God really needs to intervene here. God doesn't intervene. To say that God intervenes is to imply that most of the time, God is just sitting up in heaven, twiddling his anthropomorphic thumbs without a whole lot to do. And every once in a while, he sees something getting, kind of getting a little out of line, so he reaches down and he, he intervenes there. And the, No, God upholds all things by the word of his power. Every atom in the entire universe, you could go to some, some star in some far-flung galaxy, out on some distant spiral arm of that distant galaxy, millions if not billions of light years away, go and drill down to the middle of that star and find one little, one little molecule, one little atom molecule of hydrogen. And that little atom in, that, in the middle of that star in some far-flung galaxy is being held right now in its appointed place by the constant exertion of God's power. That is an awesome thought. And the one who is doing that is the one who directs your paths. Relax. Even in the New Testament, even in the apostolic age, you do not see the apostles seeking God's specific individual will for their lives. For example, Paul writes, I have decided to spend the winter at Nicopolis. Why did Paul spend the winter at Nicopolis? Because he got a word from the Lord to do so? No, because he decided to do it. Paul stayed in Athens by himself and he sent Timothy because we thought it best. We thought it best to do that and so we did it. Even in the New Testament, in the, in the apostolic age, you don't see the apostles seeking God's will, individual will for their lives. They just did stuff. They just did things. Now, on occasion, you do see God redirecting them providentially, but you don't see them spending time, Lord, show me, should I go here or there? They just did stuff. So just do stuff. Read and study God's word. Pray for wisdom. Ask for godly counsel. Do stuff. For the glory of God, he'll direct your paths. He'll direct your paths. Close with a quote from Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says, I have little confidence in those persons who speak of having direct revelations from the Lord as though he appeared otherwise than by and through the gospel. His word is so full, so perfect, that for God to make any fresh revelation to you or to me, is quite needless. To do so would be to put a dishonor upon the perfection of that word. Indeed. Dear friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there's one way I guarantee you, you will hear God speak. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. 100% guaranteed you will hear him speak. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a comfort it is to us knowing that you have not left us ill-equipped. We have the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We have your word.
that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we would be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We have your word. We are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. We have the fellowship of the saints. We have everything we need. Father, I pray for all of us as believers that that your Holy Spirit would impress upon us not only the authority, not only the inerrancy of your word, but also its sufficiency, that it is everything we need to live lives of obedience to the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.